guiding God, without the presence of your Holy Spirit, we'd be lost in, on this journey. Come to us in this place as we gather to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive your word and our minds to understand it. Amen. Scripture lesson this morning comes from the first Kings chapter 19, the entire chapter. So hang in there with me. <clears throat> Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in, to, in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meloha, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
So Elijah sent out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what I have done to you. He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them. Using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, James, for reading all of uh, 1 Kings 19. So good. I love that question, what are you doing here? Um, many of you know that I went to a seminary at uh, SMU up in Dallas, and I was working full-time, 40 hours a week, as a youth director at the time. Uh, and it was one of the hardest seasons of my life. And I remember uh, getting up, uh, the class schedule was not uh, favorable. And so I would have class on Tuesday, Thursday, and I still have to work. And uh, I had a young one at the time. Emery, my, my oldest, was uh, two or three. And I remember uh, driving, getting in the car and driving at like 3 a.m. to get up to Dallas so I could be at class for my 7 a.m. class. And then I'd be there all day and I'd have to get back in the car and drive all the way back home, go to work the next day on Wednesday, and then get up on Thursday and, you guessed it, rinse and repeat. And there were times when I had absolutely no idea how I made it back alive because uh, I might have taken some cat naps while driving. You know, I don't recommend it. It's not for the faint of heart. And I just had this question, you know, multiple times throughout the semester as I quit going to seminary almost every single time I drove up to that stupid city and back, you know. I was like, man, why am I even doing this? Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. Uh, but it really was a deep sense of call on my life uh, that I felt compelled to be in that place, to be doing those things. Uh, the context of our story uh, comes in a very particular place in the Bible. First Kings, which uh, some of you might have forgot there was a First Kings. Some of you uh, will now assume there is also, yes, a Second Kings, as you would assume from there being a First Kings. But it's uh, firmly in this uh, genre of literature that we call the historical books, which begins with Joshua. Joshua judges Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These uh, books of the Old Testament were probably written around uh, the 7th or 6th century BCE, uh, and they're compiled over a, a number of years by multiple authors to sort of tell the story of God's interaction with his chosen people. Uh, they partly exist to explain the exile in Babylon, which lasted for a very long time, and for the people to uh, remember who Yahweh is. Who is this God, and how does this God relate to God's people? First uh, Kings 19 is a fascinating chapter about Elijah sort of in the, the wilderness, if you will. And to understand 1 Kings 19, it's best to kind of pull up to maybe 30,000 feet and see it in context of the couple chapters that precede it. 
In 1 Kings 17, there's the story of the widow at Zarephath. And uh, you will recall that there had been a, a kind of a drought in the land. And people are going hungry. And then Elijah, he uh, performs a miracle there. And he makes food for her. Food that will always be around for forever. It's like um, some sort of vending machine of bread in her home for forever. Uh, and it just continues to supply her with food. And on top of that miracle, he also raises her son back from the dead. This sort of kicks off the ministry of this prophet. It's going good. It's a high water mark. That's 1 Kings 17. And uh, we'll see this ongoing debate sort of of miracles in the Bible. People are like, well, that's a fascinating story. Too bad it didn't really happen. And I'm going to say it doesn't really matter because as we'll see, uh, that that's not the discussion that's happening. Do these miracles, are they historical or are they not? It's not really the point of the story. The point is who is this God who reveals God's self to us and God's people? And what is this God up to? So after the, the event of the widow and the son, Elijah confronts the 450 prophets of Baal in chapter 18. We'll recall this story. There's a mountain, and there are a ton, a ton of prophets of this sort of rival god, Baal. And this is a fertility god in the area where the Israelites are settled. And this is still in the middle of the drought, we will recall. And Elijah says, that's all right, we can end this, that's cool. You guys build an altar over there. I'll build an altar over here, I'll buy my lonesome. And Elijah, being the gentleman he is, he says, you guys go first. Uh, try and get your God to do something about all this. And so they begin this sort of uh, really pagan ritual. They like begin sacrificing animals and calling out to Baal, and Baal doesn't do anything. They begin cutting themselves, right, and throwing blood. It's a horrific story, and uh, Baal doesn't do anything. And then they begin shouting louder, at which point Elijah takes the high road and begins mocking them, right? And he goes, perhaps you should uh, scream louder. Uh, it doesn't really translate it this well in the English text, but it literally says, maybe your God is indisposed in the restroom. And, and he's busy, and he can't hear you, and that's why nothing's happening over there. Go ahead, keep going. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. There's 450 prophets of this other god, and uh, there's one Elijah over there. And then Elijah uh, says, all right, my turn. I got this. Don't worry. I'll show you who the true god is. And he builds his little altar, right? He says a little tiny prayer. And then, like, it happens, right? The show happens. Fire falls from the sky, so much so it doesn't, like, just devour the sacrifice. It literally melts and burns the stones away. And water begins, like, pouring out of the heavens, ending the drought. And then everyone says, Yahweh is God. You win. Yahweh is God. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. This huge showdown. It's like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Prophets, prophets, prophets. And Elijah wins. It's this huge showdown. And God has shown up and is powerful and big. And then Elijah, not directed by the Lord, kills all of them. Right? He puts all 450 prophets to the sword, which of course angers the person in charge. And then Elijah has to flee for his life. And he flees into the wilderness. And that's the story that we hear today. It would be fascinating if the story sort of ended there, right? If like Elijah's like, woo, I won, make me king, or you know, give me that Nike deal. I don't know what prophets do when they win. Uh, it's like, you know, I'm amazing. It'd be great if the story ended there, but it doesn't, right? It, it'd be interesting if the story ended when he like fled into the wilderness and like fade to black. 
But like we have this whole entire other chapter about Elijah and his life and what happens there. Jezebel orders Elijah dead. Elijah finds himself alone. The uh, emptiness of miracles is sort of highlighted. Right? Elijah has this amazing story. He heals a woman's son. He resurrects him from the dead. He provides food for this entire family. He beats 450 prophets on this huge mountain with fireworks and everything. And then he's afraid for his life, and he runs out into the wilderness, and he's probably wondering, like, where's God in the midst of all of this? Miracles do not provide a foundation for faith. And if you need any evidence, just look at the life of Jesus. You have this Christ who does all these miracles, and the disciples are still like, is this still, is this, is this the Son of God? Really? I don't know. Right? At the cross, they all desert him. Miracles provide no foundation for faith. Let me put it another way. These high-water emotional highs that people get on in their faith journey provide no foundation for a faith that'll stand through the trials and temptations of your life. These emotional highs, these high-water marks provide no foundation for faith that will sustain you through the trials and tribulations of your life. Friends, we are coming up on a, a season in the church called Lent. Lent is a, a time uh, of 40 days that lead up to Easter, and it begins on Ash Wednesday, which is this Wednesday. It'll be over at First United Methodist Church. Encourage you to come visit uh, and uh, participate together over there. And this, uh, this 40 days, this number 40, not only is it in the passage we heard today, Elijah spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fearing for his life. This 40 is a motif throughout all of Scripture, is it not? You have 40 days and 40 nights of Noah on the ark. You have the Israelites wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. You have the uh, 40 days that Moses is on top of Mount Sinai hearing the law and commandments from God. Nineveh is given 40 days to repent or be overthrown. You have Jesus wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. You have Jesus spending time with his disciples after the resurrection for 40 days. It's a motif in all of scripture, and it's meant to stand for sort of a season, a time, a moment when you can say, after those 40, it was different. After those 40, something changed. After those 40, something new is taking place. I wonder what newness spurs up in Elijah after these 40 days and 40 nights in his wilderness. Lent is a season of preparation, of fasting, of repentance. It's a season to re-engage the spiritual life. So, where were we? You have Elijah, the widow. You have Elijah, the mountains. And Elijah here in the wilderness. 1 Kings chapter 19. Where does he go in the wilderness? He goes to Mount Horeb, which is a good discussion over which mountain is this. Mount Horeb is the mountain of God. It's God's place of residing. Uh, there's other scholars who say this is sort of a wordplay and interchange between Mount Sinai. You could say they're the same mountain. Elijah goes to the mountain of God and he finds a cave. And then he's asked a question, is he not? The question is, Elijah, what are you doing here? And there's lots of different ways to sort of 
read that question. You can put the emphasis on the you. Elijah, what are you doing here? This is like, of all people, (laughs) I didn't expect to see you, right? Or you could think of it this way, Elijah, what are you doing here on this mountain, in this place? Uh, I don't know where the emphasis lies in the sentence, but I think God is asking us that question as a church. I think God is asking us that question as individuals. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And in the story, we heard that right there's the, the fire and the earthquake. Elijah goes out to hear God, to see God. He covers his face, and God's not in the fire, which is ironic because last chapter, God was in the fire. Uh, God isn't sort of in the, the rushing of the wind that usually accompanies rain, which is ironic because in the last chapter, God was totally in that. And God is not really in the earthquake. You can imagine standing on top of that mountain with all the prophets and the earth just shaking as the fire devours the altar. God is there, present. But in the next chapter, God's not. Where is God for Elijah? It's after all that glitz and glamour has died off that God is there in the stillness and the silence. Can you hear it? Yes, you can hear silence. I know it's strange. But can you hear it? Do you see it? When the glitz and glamour is gone, God is present. I think Elijah is still plagued by this question. Why are you here? Because God asks Elijah that question again. It's repeated. I don't know if you caught that. It's repeated in that chapter. Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah offers up this response, like, I'm very zealous for the Lord. See previous chapter, right? I took care of business. I'm faithful. And God says, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah repeats himself. He says, I'm very zealous for the Lord. See previous chapter. I took care of business. God doesn't seem to be satisfied with Elijah's response, because I don't think Elijah knows why he's there, if we're being honest. I don't think Elijah knows what he's doing. I think he thinks he knows, but like it doesn't lead to where he thinks it's going to lead him. And where does it lead him? To the wilderness, to seek after God. And God says, Elijah, why are you here? Chapelwood, why are you here? You, and you, and you. Why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you here now? Why are you here? Lent is a, is a season, is an opportunity for us to truly answer that question. It's an opportunity for us to engage with God and to say, God, why am I here? Because if we're honest, right, Chapelwood has had high water marks. We've had those moments on top of Mount Carmel with the showdown where we had 150 people go to UM Army, and it was amazing. And then next season, you're in the wilderness saying, why am I here? (laughs) Where is God? Folks, God is still here. Do you hear him? He's not in the glitz and the glamour. He's in the silence. God's still here. God is present. Being asked this question today, Why are you here? 
My prayer for us this Lent is that we will engage that question, that we will truly engage this, why are you here? Because I cannot answer it for you. God's asking that of you individually. Why are you here? And so uh, this Lent, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Two things, really. And they are traditional Christian practices of Lent. One is I want you to give something up. And the second is I want you to take something on. Give something up and take something on. So this Lent, you can give something up. Traditionally, Christians fast during Lent. Uh, And fasting looks like a lot of different things, right? Elijah in the story is hungry because he ain't eating because he's in the wilderness. He's fasting. And the angels provide for him. And he's able to continue his journey because of God's provision. This is what fasting teaches us is that we don't need it. We don't need it. We rely on God and God alone. We don't need it. And so give something up. I'm going to share that uh, it is my practice during Lent to give up alcohol. I'm not a huge drinker. I drink socially with friends. And it changes my heart during Lent. When people are like, hey, you want to get together for a beer? And I go, I don't need it. Like, God sustains me. It is, uh, it is Lent. It is a time for me to re-engage a spiritual practice and to give it up. Sometimes uh, I encourage you to give up small things. Like maybe you give up a Netflix or it might not be a small thing for you. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you give up chocolate, which I tried one year, just abysmally. It's so difficult. And give up caffeine or coffee. You don't need it. You don't need it. God provides for you. So give something up. I want to encourage you to give something up. If you don't, man, we aren't really practicing Lent, if we're honest with ourselves. Give something up and say, I don't need it. God will provide for me. Why are you here? And the next thing I want to encourage you to do is take something on. Take something on. And this can be a spiritual practice. It can be, you know what, I'm going to read my Bible um, all through Lent. I'm just going to pick, it doesn't matter what time of day, I'm just going to open it up and I'm going to read. And that's something you, you take on. And God fills you through that practice. You can say, I'm going to take on the practice of being silent. And so when you get in the car, you turn the radio off. And you sit there and drive to your destination and silence. What did we say earlier? God's in the silence. You can hear the silence. You just need to listen. And you sit. You can take that on. That can be a practice for you during this Lenten season. I don't know what the practice is for you. I think you have to decide that for yourself. Uh, I want to encourage you on Wednesday, if you don't know what to do, on Wednesday... A group of us at church are going to be fasting, and we're going to break fast together at our simple meal that we'll be having in the fellowship hall on Wednesday nights, and we'll begin this embrace curriculum. I want to encourage you to consider taking that on during this Lenten season. Maybe you need to take on the spiritual gift of tithing. You need to take on the spiritual gift of being generous with your money. And you understand that there are missions and ministries here in the area that the church has things going on that you want to give to. And this is something that changes your heart. It's a spiritual discipline you take on during the season of Lent. And you say, you know, I'm going to try on this tithing thing for size. Let's see if it changes who I am. I guarantee you it will. So this Lenten season, you need to give something up, relinquish it, let it go. And you need to take something on to change you. What are you doing here? 
What are you doing here? Is this Lent going to be just like another season, another thing, another study, and you're going to get to Easter and be like, oh yeah, we did the Lent thing, and I'm done, and I'm changed, and it was great. Or are you able to answer this question? What are you doing here? And you can say, you know what, this Lent, I took it seriously. I decided to give something up, and I took something on, and I'm a changed person because of it. And God is good, and God showed up and changed me. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.